I grew up in Northeast Salem and it was a play, a neighborhood where my entire street was pretty much Mexican-American families, African-American families, immigrants from other places to like Russia and Vietnam, Cambodia, seeing one of my uncles come home and they didn't get paid that week for the work that they did. And just watching my my dad and the rest of his friends be like, we're going to go get that check, right? <laughs> and advocating for each other too. I really grew up with a deep sense that I needed to be a part of the positive change. Hi, I'm Peter Marks. Welcome to Rhythm Nation, a podcast, radio show, and community that celebrates the intersection of activism and music. My hope is that with each episode, you'll come away with a greater appreciation for the political context of music and be inspired to make activism a larger, more productive part of your life. On the show today, I have Reina Lopez, who is the executive director of Pacoon. Pacoon's mission is to empower farm workers and working Latinx families in Oregon by building community, increasing Latinx representation in elections, and policy advocating on both the national and state levels. On the show, we talk about the balance of power we're seeing shift between farm workers and their employers, and then discuss a playlist of some of the music that's inspired Raina's work. Raina, thank you so much for being here. How's it going? Hey, it's going great. Thanks for the invite. I'm really excited to chat with you and learn more about Pacoon. For those unfamiliar, like myself to some extent, can you briefly explain Pacoon's mission and work? Yeah, of course. So um, my name is Reina Lopez. I'm the executive director and president of Pacoon, uh, also known as Pineros y Campesinos Unidos del Noroeste, the tree planters and the farm workers of the Northwest. We really started off as a union for farm workers. And in the beginning, it was... 1985, uh, where 80 farm workers founded Pineros y Campesinos with this vision and this dream of having a union of their own. And they were really inspired by the work of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. In fact, they helped us found our first convention here in Oregon um, back in 86, I believe. And the whole idea was to fight against exploitation and all of the effects that came with that. And people Frankly, they were pretty fed up with the conditions that were happening out in the fields and uh, with this idea that someday we could gain collective bargaining rights to be able to improve those conditions. As time went on, though, Bikun evolved. We became more than just a union. We actually became more of a hybrid community organization, worker center and union, which makes us a little bit different than most of your average unions today. And our mission transformed into really becoming an organization that empowers farm workers and Latinx working families through building community, increasing Latinx representation in elections, and also policy and advocacy at both the state and national level. So today, Pecun is, is really based in the heart. I love to, I, I'm a little biased, right, in the heart of the Oregon Latinx community um, in Marion County, the Mid Willamette Valley, where it's one of the most vibrant agricultural districts in the state. And Woodburn itself is the first Latinx majority municipality in the state, too, in the first majority BIPOC district in the state. So we're, we call ourselves, just to simplify things, Oregon's Farm Worker Union, and we, we fight for low-wage workers and Latinx working families. But again, our 
mission at the beginning was to take action against exploitation. So that legacy continues. Our agenda really, really centers strengthening workers' rights and creating safer workplaces, advocating for fair wages, and also just working to have our families just be stable and have economic security. We're very intersectional in the way that we do things. And our values are that we value equity, dignity, respect for workers. Si se puede, right? The yes, we can spirit of Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez. And um, and like I mentioned, Pecun was founded by farm workers. Some of those farm workers were our parents, our, our uncles, our abuelos, you know. So for us, that that vision of building power for our community, for our families, for our friends, for the places that we care about most is front and center and and what we do. It's the corazón, right? The heart of the work. So at this moment at the national level, we're seeing the balance of power shifts between workers and employers and just a general resurgence in labor organizing across the country. What are you seeing in the communities that Bakun serves? You know, I've been loving seeing that resurgence. I think that even last uh, last year when we had Striketober, I was just like, yes, this is where we need to be. We need to bring power back to the workers, power back to the people, and bring how critical it is to have that lens of our workplace, but our community, and also who we are as people in our community. And I think that in the last couple of years, the pandemic while it was devastating our communities, killing millions of people, it transformed our lives and it really put a magnifying glass on the issues that have always been in our society, especially when it came to issues of race, issues of class, issues of gender. And for Pekun, um, I mean, we've been doing this work for decades. It's It really has fought to center dignity and respect for farm workers, many of them brown people from Mexico and Central America, some of them speaking exclusively indigenous languages of those areas and of mixed immigration status up to the forefront. And all of a sudden we were called essential during the pandemic, right? Essential workers. And for, and for the first time, I think that in many years, hearing that term, especially when some of the national rhetoric was so negative against our community, against Mexican immigrants, um, people like myself who for the first time heard that and were like, oh, okay, essential worker. But I think some of us had a really mixed feeling about it. This term meant nothing if we weren't being treated with dignity and respect. And many, many of the members in our community said, yeah, we're essential, but we're, we feel disposable. And that was what I kept hearing at the beginning of the pandemic and people were just risking their lives every single day to make sure that America's table was fed um, for, for many farm workers and other immigrant workers. It really started with calls. I mean, we were getting dozens and dozens of calls during that first week of the shutdowns uh, to our office and people were just afraid to go to work. Um, people were telling us about, their family members that died, people were telling us about the outbreaks that were happening in their workplace, because many of them, you know, just didn't have the luxury to stay home during the the uh, the shutdowns. And people were afraid to miss a, a day of pay, were afraid to miss a day of work and um, afraid to lose their job. So we started to organize right away. And there were several things that really came up for people. People were talking about, well, 
I'm furloughed. I cannot access unemployment insurance. All of my coworkers can, but I'm undocumented. So we started to think about what it would mean to have an alternative stimulus, an alternative financial support for farm workers and immigrant workers across the state. Later on, we started hearing about people saying, well, we're working shoulder to shoulder in the in the processing plant and also started to brainstorm ways that we could have protocols and standards that could protect our people, our family members, ourselves when we we're working in the in the processing plant and the cannery and uh, that we had the protective equipment necessary to be able to do those things. And uh, the other thing we were hearing is we're not getting any of the information that is most important during this emergency. And we're not getting it in Spanish, definitely not getting it in any of the top spoken indigenous languages by farm workers. A lot of people don't know that many farm workers actually come from indigenous communities back in Mexico and Central America. And there's their primary language isn't even Spanish. It's an indigenous language like Mixteco or Purepecha. So making sure that there was language access to some of that vital information that most of us were taking for granted. Maybe you were getting it through email or social media, but it wasn't getting to everybody in an equitable way. And this led workers to demand more because not only were farm workers on the front line of the pandemic, but then again, we were at the front line to the climate crisis, right? In 2020, we had those Labor Day mega fires that devastated communities, burnt down entire farm worker communities in some parts of Oregon, Phoenix, Oregon being one of those. And then in 2021, we were on the front line of the climate crisis again when we had record setting heat waves that killed over 100 people in Oregon. One of those people was a farm worker named Sebastian Francisco Perez, who was an indigenous man from Guatemala, came here with a dream of building a home for his family back in Guatemala. And unfortunately, during that hot day, he was laying irrigation pipe on his own and he passed out. They didn't find him in time and he passed away, unfortunately. That really meant that we needed to bring people together It meant that we needed to harness that feeling of frustration, of fear that our community was feeling. And we had to say, look, no, we need to turn this around ourselves. No one's going to hand us any single changes without us speaking up for ourselves. And so we started some massive campaigns to be able to make those changes. And it was a really critical moment of bringing people together when people were feeling most isolated, but to also show that si se puede spirit, right? Show people that we can do it and that we can actually center some of the most historically excluded voices and we can change things for all workers. We can actually have these really positive impacts for everybody. And that was a really critical moment. I mean, those were all really key moments, I think, just in the past couple of years that have been si se puede moments, times where we really needed to meet the moment for our community, but also rise up all boats and you know, I think that with a sad, such a sad tragedy that happened with Sebastian, it also was a moment for us to say, this can't happen again. And this, this death is not going to happen in vain. We're going to do something for our community and we're going to make it have impacts that are really felt statewide. What are some of the current campaigns and initiatives that Pakun is taking on in response to tragedies and, and events like what you mentioned with Sebastian? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, our staff, our, our members, our volunteers, many of them were saying, okay, well, let's brainstorm about this. How do we protect ourselves? How do we center the voices of workers? How do we center the voices of farm workers specifically, which for many, many decades, right, since the beginning of time in, in our country have been excluded from some of the most important labor protections in the history of the United States. I think a lot of people don't know this, but farm workers, one of the reasons why Bitcoin actually had to become this hybrid union was because we were like, yeah, we're going to start this union and we're going to get collective bargaining rights. But in the the New Deal era, um, in the 1930s, when we had the National Labor Relations Act, one of the most important pieces of protection for workers across the nation to be able to unionize, it excluded two groups of people. And unfortunately, those groups of people were excluded because of Jim Crow era discrimination that was happening. And they couldn't get the votes to pass it without some of the Southern uh, some of Southern legislators getting getting the votes from them. So the National Labor Relations Act today excludes farm workers and domestic workers. Back in those days, the majority were black workers. And today, the majority are workers that are Mexican and, and Latino immigrants from different parts of, of Latin America um, with mixed immigration status. So I think that for us, we needed to lead a campaign that was really centering our stories. And one of the things that came up and that we're still right in the middle of and making sure that it's a sustained fund for our communities is the Oregon Worker Relief Fund. And we started that campaign when we were getting all those calls I was telling you about people saying, hey, I'm not going to be able to qualify for unemployment or I'm not going to be able to qualify for the stimulus check or I just don't get sick. I don't get sick leave. I don't get two weeks. Uh, I can't just take that time off if I get sick. So the Oregon Worker Relief Fund became an alternative stimulus support for undocumented workers and farm workers of every immigration status um, to be able to have either a relief that was one time that could help them get through the pandemic, even if it was just to pay for some rent, pay for some groceries, and also for farm workers who to be able to take the time off to isolate if they were exposed to COVID or if they were dealing with the with the impacts of the pandemic. Today, that fund has distributed over $100 million to, to workers across the state, and it has become an important home for more initiatives like this. Um, one of the big things we're working on now, too, in the legislature is climate disaster pay. It's one of our next campaigns in the 2023 uh, legislative session. And so, you know, if we have outdoor workers that are having to miss a day of work because of extreme heat or toxic smoke air quality levels, we can also be able to do that with an alternative payment for them to be able to take that time away. Uh, the other thing that was a really critical initiative for us, and now we're in the education and implementation phase of it, is the Farm Worker Overtime Campaign, um, House Bill 4002, which we just passed in this last short session. It basically ends the farm worker exclusion uh, for overtime pay for time and a half after 40 hours here in Oregon. And this goes back again to the New Deal era reforms that happened in the 1930s, where farm workers were excluded from the Fair Labor Standards Act, which guaranteed workers pay after overtime, it had protections around child labor, 
standards and it also guaranteed minimum wage. So that was something we did in Oregon. And now we're in a phase where we're like, okay, we we just won this big thing. (laughs) Now let's make sure that it gets enforced because we have found that in the last decades that we've been able to pass these really important laws, even here in Oregon, it's been really difficult to enforce things. Our agencies that are in place to enforce these labor protections, Bully, the Bureau of Labor and Industries and OSHA, um, the, the Occupational Health and Safety Department, they don't have enough resources to be able to be everywhere in Oregon to protect every worker. So we are trying to figure out more creative ways to make sure that workers are able to stand up for their rights and for them to become those whistleblowers that we need to be able to enforce these critical rights that we just spent so much time and effort passing. So that's another big upcoming um, initiative that Bakun has, as well as just recently passing officially permanent protections for outdoor workers in Oregon uh, against extreme heat and toxic smoke and air quality levels due to wildfires and um, those really hot days that that we are dreading in the future, right? And that we that resulted in the death of Sebastian Francisco Perez and many others. So for us, it was really important that it wasn't just farm workers. I mean, we serve farm workers, but we know that there are many other workers out there that are working in construction and landscaping in different industries that actually were also impacted by the extreme heat. So this is going to guarantee folks who are working 15 minutes or more outside during the workday, guaranteed paid breaks, additional paid breaks. It's going to guarantee cool and clean water access at the workplace. And it's also going to guarantee shade structures. And you might say, hey, this seems like really common sense stuff, but it wasn't something that was required in the past. But now it's really important that we're also in a place that we can enforce this stuff. So in the 2023 legislative session, we are starting to build up our worker agenda to focus on strategic enforcement so that workers can be empowered to either go to their union, go to a worker center, go to even Pekun if you want to, to help people bring claims and bring bring complaints when these things aren't being enforced and figuring out how we can build up that capacity in our agencies to be able to rebuild that trust, rebuild that faith. Because I think one of the things I hear a lot when I'm talking to farm workers in the community is, is, hey, I made this complaint to Bully and no paso nada. <laughs> That's it. And no paso nada is a way of saying in Spanish and nothing happened. Uh, so why? <laughs> and again, it goes back to making sure that our agencies are, are resourced to be able to take these claims, investigate them and make sure that people are able to feel empowered and not be at risk of retaliation or be at risk of some negative impact in their job when we know that especially for working class people, that's just not an option. Like we need to go to work. We have families that we have to take care of, especially for immigrant communities. There's many other barriers that are in place for that. So so we have really taken on wanting to focus on this issue. And of course, on the other side is the national efforts. National immigration reform is always on the pick one agenda because the majority of our base is actually a mixed immigration status. I come from a mixed immigration status family. My family came here 
undocumented to do farm work. And for us, the thing that changed our lives was the 1986 reform that was able to give our family a pathway to to get legalized and eventually a pathway to citizenship. So for us, this is always a big, big issue. And it's difficult too with the way that the national landscape is. You know, we haven't seen a ton of movement, unfortunately, on it. But like I said, it's always on the top of the agenda. <laughs> you mentioned talking with agricultural workers. I would love to learn more about your organizing strategy of really getting through to them. I mean, I, I would imagine you have you and your organization have credibility being immigrants yourselves or children of immigrants and can understand their lived experience to a degree. But you mentioned that there is fear of retaliation. And, and I, I'm curious, like, what, what, what are the tactics that you use to get through to these essential workers, as you described them, and, and really help them realize their own power? Can you speak to those sorts of grassroots efforts? Oh, yeah. I mean, never underestimate the power of having an organization behind you when you have an issue, right? I'm Our organization itself, I think that why it has so much credibility and trust in the community is because we were started by those same people. You know, I'm, I'm a daughter of farm workers. My parents made the trek north for a better life, first in the strawberry fields of California. And then in 86, we finally got to Oregon to work in the Christmas tree industry. And my dad actually became a member of Bikwun at that time. And all of my uncles, you know, all of them became members of Bikwun at that time because there was an organization that they were saying is fighting for our rights. And this is one of the reasons we even came to Salem. Coming all the way from California, there was, there was rumors of an organization that was helping people with their, with their applications for the 86 amnesty and that they were also protecting workers in the workplace. And it was a big draw to people. So I think that one, just the fact that it was an organization that was was founded by the people most impacted has given it that, that credibility to be able to be a place that people go that they trust. Um, so that I think is one of the biggest reasons. But the way that we organize is really centered around um, building communities that are in relationship with each other, whether that's at a local community level or a global community level, because our families are in different parts of the world. We really build power through a very specific combination of elements in the work that we do. One of those is base building, all year round base building, where we have um, teams of people who they themselves were farm workers at one time going out into the, the labor camps, going to farm worker housing, going to the places where our people are at, where we can get in front of them and talk to them about issues that are impacting our communities or a survey about how the heat is affecting them. Or maybe it's just a listening canvas. It's like, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? And then all the things come out, right? It's like you have to be ready for for not just hearing about the extreme heat, but potentially some of the other really significant issues that are happening in the workplace. The other part of it is that we build coalitions that are intersectional, that are really focused on systematic change and systematic change that is pro-immigrant, progressive, and pro-farm worker. And that's one of our biggest, um, that's where we really center a lot of the change that we do. Is it these three things? Is this policy doing these three things? Are these folks 
are these other organizations also about racial justice, about um, justice for workers, about justice for um, gender and different genders, right? And can we work with these folks to advance this agenda and actually pass different policies? And with coalitions, I mean, we've been able to work with folks from other unions, from the Black community, from the API community, from um, from the faith community to pass things that have massive, massive impacts on people's daily lives. Can people feel it in their regular day, right? <laughs> and also by organizing. Organizing is really the most important part of this work. It's it's the soul of the work. And we organize around, honestly, anything we can get our hands on. <laughs> we organize around issues. We organize around candidates if we have to. Um, one of the pride and joys of our history has been the election of Teresa Alonso Leon, who was the first indigenous migrant Latina in the legislature. And now she um, she represents also the, the BIPOC majority house district of the state, the first BIPOC majority house district. So seeing people that represent us in those spaces, a daughter of farm workers, right, that has been leading uh, in the different immigrant rights issues, including the passing of the driver's license for all, all bill that passed a couple of years ago, which was one of the very first campaigns I ever worked on. Um, and also around workplace issues, like what we have been seeing. I mean, we, like I said, we have never functioned as a traditional labor union. I mean, we've tried in the past and we definitely had a moment where we had some really monumental contracts. Our first contract being in 1992 um, during the big cucumber strike that was happening in Salem. Um, but now we realize that we really need to, to be an organization that was including everyone, including not just our workers, but the, our families, our friends, and trying to include a very intersectional approach to the changes that we need to happen, that need to happen in our lives. Because as you know, our lives aren't just at work. Our lives are in our kids' schools. Our lives are at home. And the analysis that we really put on that is, are we able to have a say in the things that happen to us in our daily lives? And it's a very simple concept, right? <laughs> but again, when you are living in a, in a society that isn't necessarily all about you, right? There are things that we need to advocate our, for ourselves for, um, not just in the workplace. You mentioned that your your father was a member of Pekun. What was your path from going from your your family's involved in this to now you are leading this? Like, what what, what was the journey that brought you there? Yeah, I like to say that Pekun's in my DNA, right? It was in me before I was even born. But for me, after my parents moved up to Salem, I grew up in well, I grew up in Northeast Salem, and. It was a play, a neighborhood where my entire street was pretty much Mexican-American families, African-American families, immigrants from other places to like Russia and Vietnam, Cambodia. It was definitely a, a low income, working class neighborhood at, where we saw a lot of things, right? Saw a lot of discrimination, whether that was hearing the stories about my dad and his work experience or seeing one of my uncles come home and 
they didn't get paid that week for the work that they did. And just watching my my dad and the rest of his friends be like, we're going to go get that check, right? <laughs> Advocating for each other too, experiencing myself it myself growing up and going to school. And I really grew up with a deep sense that I needed to be a part of the positive change, right? I have really, really vivid memories of May Days back when I was younger in my teens. And May Day in Salem, it was a big activist day for the Mexican-American community, Mexican immigrants all across Salem. There was one May Day, I remember, that really changed everything for me. Even though I always knew that there was justice in my heart, it was the moment that I knew I wanted to be an activist. (laughs) So May Day 2007, and it was one of the biggest rallies I've ever seen in downtown Salem. It was at the Capitol. And I was actually interning for a senator at the time, Senator back then, Ben Westland. And I was also one of the only Latinas in that side of the legislature. I think there was maybe one other person, but I was I was just an intern. I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't a senator. I wasn't the president of Pecun at the time. And I just remember being like, wow, I should be out there. <laughs> I need to be out there with my people and wanting to understand more about like why it was that Things were happening in that building, but all the people were outside of it. And that was the year that they took away the driver's licenses. So back in 2007, there was a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric that was going on. And Governor Ted Kulingowski signed an executive order that would basically make it impossible for undocumented Oregonians to get driver's licenses. And after that, it became one of the top issues in the Latinx community and the immigrant community here in Oregon. So pretty much after that, I ended up doing a political fellowship with an organization that is not called the Bus Project anymore. It's now called Next Up. But it was this youth-led organization that sent me off to this organizer's boot camp. It was 10 weeks of just eating, breathing, sleeping, political campaigns. And I really got a lot of my skills there. While I was there, there was one presentation that happened from the a former executive director of CAUSA, Oregon's Immigrant Rights Organization, and I just ran after them after the presentation. I was like, hey, I love what you do. Like, I would love to be a part of your organization if you have any openings. And he said, yeah, we might have something. We'll, we'll give you a call later. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. And so... By this time, it was like a year later, and they did have a, a position for me. And that was it was actually doing organizing around the driver's license and trying to get driver's license restoration. So I showed up there my first day. I was, I think I was like 23 years old, and I just felt right at home. I, I felt like I was home. And that's the best way I can describe it to you. But I really threw my heart and my soul into trying to restore the driver's license. And that was my signature campaign while I was there for about five years. And then also doing some of the national work around um, comprehensive immigration reform, which we did not pass in 2013 and we're still trying to get there um, someday. But it was where I got a lot of my more movement building skills and my movement building organizing 
um, mentality and the really learned about the values of the the Alianza Poder movement, which is the movement that Pekun is a part of. So just kind of worked my way through, eventually went off and worked for different ballot measure campaigns. And, you know, a few years went by. But after a few of those years went by, I actually hit up Ramon Ramirez, who was my predecessor at Pekun and and was back on the job hunt. <laughs> and I was like, hey, man, I'm looking for a job. What do you have at Pekun? And he he said, yeah, we'll give you a call later. I'll let you know. And uh, like about a month later, the secretary treasurer of Pekun called me, Jaime Arredondo, and he asked me to coffee. And I said, OK, of course, I'll let's go get some coffee. And uh, he said, hey, so things are changing at Pekun. Ramon's retiring. I'm heading to go be the executive director of Capasa's Leadership Institute. And we wanted to know if you wanted to come run Pekun. And so I was like, wow, really me? <laughs> and uh, of course I said yes. But again, I think that that feeling of coming home was also there. In fact, that was the exact words he used. He said, it's time to come home, Reina. And so I took that very seriously and said, of course, you know, I, I, of course I'll come back to the to the movement. And really, it's been um, an honor and a privilege to get to run Pekun for these last four and a half years. It's been awesome. So you put together a playlist of music that's inspired you and your work and I'd imagine played a role in your journey. Uh, I'd love to go through this playlist together and hear a little bit about each song. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> the first track is Mi Gente by Jay Balvin. Oh, yeah. This is Mi Gente by J Balvin. Uh, so Mi Gente means my people in Spanish. It's also a very popular reggaeton, perreo song. And not only is it just, I love to dance. It's Dancing is, is life for me, but it's a very, very fun song to dance to. But also just the, the meaning of my people, Mi Gente, it just always inspires me and it always gets me moving, <laughs> especially if we're having some long meetings. It's, I like to play it and make people kind of move around to it in the breaks. <laughs> Next track is Bidi uh, Bidi Boom Boom by Selena. Oh, yeah. So anything for Selena's. <laughs> Growing up, Selena was one of the first people that I saw that looked like me that was famous, a famous singer who didn't fit the cookie cutter uh, image of a pop star in the United States. And she sang in Spanish. She sang in English. And this song, Bidi Bidi Bum Bum, is also just a really fun song. It's um, a song that I think also exemplifies a, a spirit of the Latino community, Latinx community here in the United States, but also this duality that Selena had, not being quite from Mexico, but not being quite from the, the country that she was born in. And it really is, um, all the music that Selena does is, is really inspirational to me, but this song in particular, just because I really, like I said, I love to dance and this one gets me dancing too.
Next track is by Bomba Estereo. Algo está cambiando en mí. Yes, Bomba Estereo. They are a South American uh, alt Latino band um, that I really, really love. Algo está cambiando en mí. It translates to something is changing in me. And for me, this is also very exemplary of the fact that there's a lot of change that we want to see in this world. But in order for that change to happen, we have to change. And I felt the song really strongly, especially when I started at Bikun. There was a lot of lifestyle changes that I had to make to be able to be the leader I wanted to be for my community. And um, yeah, this song exemplifies that for me. Next track is Cesar Chavez by Los Tigres del Norte. Los Tigres del Norte are iconic in the Mexican community, the Latinx community in the United States, but all over Latin America. Cesar Chavez is a song that they wrote about the late and great icon, leader of the farm worker movement, first president of the United Farm Workers, and also an icon in the Pecun movement. And it just talks about Cesar Chavez as an activist, as a person who was just this regular guy that wanted to see a change and about the struggles of farm workers in the United States. And the Los Tigres del Norte, they are really known for going across the country and hearing about people's immigrant stories and singing about those things. And so this is one of those songs. And of course, I think that it's also one of the best songs to play when we have big events epic wound playing the Cesar Chavez song reminding people about the music that's out there that is also movement building music and that talks about our stories and talks about farm workers in a in a way that is loving and respectful but also our our contributions to activism in the United States Pero sus demandas se le concedieron 24 días en el 75. Next track is El Paso del Gigante by Grupo Sonador. El Paso del Gigante. So this translates to the step of the giant. And it's this this one's just more for fun, but um, cumbia music is especially Mexican cumbia music is something that is actually the kind of music I really like to play at our Pecun events. There's a lot of symbolism to it. A lot of people don't know that cumbia is actually music that was brought to Latin America by black folks, by folks that um, many of them were running away from, um, from forced servitude that came to Mexico and maybe came to the different islands and they brought this music. and. Um, El Paso del Gigante is just a really awesome track. I think that it's like one of my favorite cumbia songs for the 
for the beat that it has, but also, like I mentioned, Kumia music has a really, really deep history too in, um, in the struggles of the people and even the sounds that the, the music makes, like the The history of that is that it actually was supposed to mimic the sound of the chains that slaves came in. Um, and the music of Kumbia is supposed to also be like it has its history and in, in resistance and in liberation for black folks but you know now a lot of a lot of mestizos you know black indigenous folks and in, in in latin america love it right but it does have some deep roots too The next track is Serpiente Dorada Dengue 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 Dengue. Oh my gosh, Dengue Dengue Dengue. Um, this is a duo South American DJs that um, really just like brought the electronic flavor to the cumbia scene, and they are awesome. I just remember having a moment at the Holocene a few years ago, and just that mixture of the music and of the sounds and then electronic music it just really really made me feel some type of way in the best way because it really brought many of my worlds together so dengue 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 is uh, a duo that i highly recommend if you just want to have some good music but you can have some fun Next track is All Right by Kendrick Lamar. Gosh, I think that this song has just been an anthem, right, for movements and resistance, especially after uh, the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and just seeing how this song, All Right, just became a way of expressing movement building, expressing activism during a time that was so difficult, and we're still in that time, right, where the racial uprisings really brought all of this to the forefront it was for me at least it was something i could not stop thinking about and at the same time hearing kendrick lamar say we gonna be all right it was just it's also a way of saying yeah we're gonna we're still here and we're still resisting and also as you can see my playlist is a little bit of reggaeton it's some cumbia it's some banda music it's some electronic and i think that having some of the hip-hop in here also exemplifies what it's like to be a chicana in oregon where we listen to a little bit of everything but hip-hop has to be Next track is Summer Nights by Lil Rob. Summer Nights, Lil Rob, it makes me, it just reminds me of my neighborhood, honestly, um, where he just starts off, I feel good, I feel all right. And I just can remember growing up on June Street with all my cousins and the 
like carne asada going and the uncles just, you know, on one side, all the like aunties on the other side and it just reminded me of, of home. Um, and Lil Rob too is a, is a Ch historic Chicano rapper, an elder in the Chicano rap movement. So I think that I really have a lot of love and respect for, for Lil Rob. Polished up the chrome, call the Ruka on the phone, let her know I'm home alone. It's 7.30 and the sun's going down. It's a summer night and the fun's going down. I pick her up and she looks all dolled up. Sitting passenger in my rag and parlor. Next track is La Bamba Rebelde by Las Cafeteras. Oh, Las Cafeteras. They are awesome. So Las Cafeteras is this awesome group uh, from L.A. And... They have all kinds of music that's very, very movement driven. But this one, um, La, Bamba, La Bamba Rebelde, it's, it talks about um, these young people who grew up in L.A. and what it was like to, to be a Latinx person, a Chicano in L.A. And uh, I really love Las Cafeteras. They are very, very politically conscious, too, and do a lot for the community. So this one is a shout out to them. Last track is La Wala de Oro by Los Tigres del Norte. Yeah, I got another one of Los Tigres del Norte, La Jaula de Oro. So um, this translates to the gold cage, the golden cage. And it, it always makes me want to cry a little bit. It's a song about a dad who can't talk to his kids <laughs> and who just spends time working. Um, and so it just kind of hits my heart. And this song also always plays at May Day. Thank you so much for putting together this playlist. It, it, I, feel, I feel like it, it adds so much context behind the music to hear what it, it means to people and some of the history behind it. I, I definitely did not know that bit about, about the cumbia music being like this, like the rhythm of chains. That's really, really powerful in a lot of ways. Um, for those who want to learn more about Pacoon or, or support your work, what, what would you encourage them to do? What, what, what should they be checking out? Yeah, check us out on our website, www.pecun.org. We also are on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. You can just search at Pecun Oregon. Um, and we also have a YouTube channel. Um, and yeah, that's where you can hit us up. If you want to keep in touch, sign on to our newsletter, sign on to volunteer, 
Or if you can't do either of those, but you want to donate, we're always taking donations to help us continue to do the work that we do. But um, yeah, thank you so much for inviting me to your show today and for listening to my story. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure having you on, Raina. Thank you so much for your time and for your work. Thank you.